Well, good morning. Good morning. It is such an honor, such a joy to be here with you again today. When I was here about a year ago, I think it was, I was asked to share on the theme of happiness. And, and that was a topic that was near to my heart, mostly because happiness doesn't come easily to me. I have to keep choosing it every day. Today, I've been asked to share on a theme that is equally dear to my heart, but it is a subject I do have a lot of personal experience with, a topic that could be considered the polar opposite of happiness, grief. Grief. I have had to make a choice to be happy most of my adult life, but grief seems to keep choosing me. I wish it wouldn't, but there it is. And here it is. And here it is. I know that it is not an exaggeration to say that almost every person in this room and listening online, no matter what age, life stage, or circumstance, is going through some kind of hard time. True? Almost every person listening today is experiencing some level of pain, and for some of you, it's quite intense. Some are experiencing loss of health, loss of a job, loss of a loved one. Some are experiencing the loneliness of a marriage, the brokenness of a family, the death of a dream. Some are weighed down by things that you've done that you think are unforgivable or carrying the weight around of things that have been done to you that are unconscionable. Some of you are questioning your identity, your security, your future. Some of you are searching for a God you are not finding or for answers you are not getting, and it's painful. It's painful. Pain is the single universal human experience. Not everyone is rich. Not everyone is poor. Not everyone is happy. Not everyone is unhappy. Right? Not everyone is loved. But every single person on this planet has pain. So what are we to do with that? When we live in the in-between, as that intro video said, that space between heartbreak and hope, when we live between the pain of today and the promise of a better tomorrow, what do we do? What do we say? Where do we turn? 
Well, the Bible gives us generous permission and a well-worn pathway for expressing pain. And it's called lament. Old Testament scholars estimate that two-thirds of the book of Psalms are lament. Isn't that interesting? We think of the Psalms as a book of praise and thanksgiving and worship and adoration. Fully two-thirds of it are expressions of pain. Every prophetic book except one contains lament. The oldest book of the Bible the book of Job expresses lament from beginning to end. Appropriate, as pain is the oldest shared human experience. So for the next several weeks, we are gonna be taking a deep dive into a book named Lamentations. And we're in chapter one this morning going to encourage you to take your Bible uh, or your Bible app and get it open to Lamentations chapter 1. Um, it's long. We're not going to read the whole chapter now. I would encourage you to do that this afternoon. In fact, take an opportunity, just read the whole book. It's not that long and it will set you up well for the studies in the weeks to come. But for now, let's read the first four verses. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. She sobs through the night. Tears stream down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. Judah has been led away into captivity, oppressed with cruel slavery. She lives among foreign nations and has no place of rest. Her enemies have chased her down and she has nowhere to turn. The roads to Jerusalem are in mourning. For crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent. Her priests groan. Her young women are crying. How bitter is her fate. So if, if the name of the book didn't give it away, the first four verses do, right? This is going to be a book about sorrow, loss, pain, grief. Jerusalem, the beautiful city of God, the center of life and worship for the chosen people, the place of promise, the place of the indwelling presence of God has fallen. And not only has it fallen, it is completely destroyed. After a long and horrifying siege, Babylonian armies have breached the walls and burned the city to the ground. All the people have been killed, tortured, or taken captive. It's a real event that happened in history about 586 BC, and that is what the author of this book is reflecting on. 
And from the very opening words, we begin to learn something about grief and how we journey through it. It's possible we might even learn something about good grief. And perhaps the first lesson is this. Good grief is honest about pain. Good grief is honest about pain. The nickname of the book is the Book of Tears. The author of the book, probably Jeremiah, was called the Weeping Prophet. The book is written in the style of ancient funeral songs. In fact, each chapter is a funeral poem. And everything that we know from the title to the nickname to the author to the style tells us that this is going to be a book about grief that is willing to be heart-wrenchingly honest about pain. I read the first chapter over and over in its entirety and I made note of some of the words being used. Deserted. Lonely. Sobbing, betrayed, enslaved, oppressed, mourning, groaning, starving, weak, bitter, punished, sad, wandering, fallen, naked, humiliated, shamed, miserable, violated, Hungry, sick, helpless, trampled, broken, despair, rebellion, death. Jeremiah does not shrink back from using the most honest, the most raw words to describe the pain. The pain of seeing Jerusalem fall the pain of seeing the free people of God go back into slavery, the pain of bearing witness to their sin, their disobedience, and their punishment. Jeremiah is grieving, and he is honest about that grief. I was searching for that kind of honesty when I sat in a chapel service uh, at, at university it was typical chapel service, uh, lots of upbeat songs, lots of praise-filled testimonies, except I was going through a really dark time in my life. I was a follower of Jesus, but I wasn't hearing language in worship services that gave voice to my journey at that time. And so I went home and I kind of poured it all out with my pen as I'm, I'm kind of inclined to do. And one line of the poem that I wrote said, show me your darkness, I can't see your light. Perhaps you can identify. Maybe you've had experiences like that where you're just longing for honesty and transparency. And since that time, I have been grateful to discover that there is a vast biblical witness that gives all kinds of language to darkness, gives us all kinds of language to express grief and be honest about pain. And if you can identify 
with any of the painful words used in the first chapter of Lamentations this morning, take heart. You do not have to keep those words, those feelings bottled up. You can be honest about pain. That's good grief and that's good for you. The second observation that I make as I, as I meditated on this text was that good grief affirms that our lives are in God's hands. Good grief affirms that our lives are in God's hands. If you were to go home and, and read the whole chapter this afternoon, you might, if you give yourself permission with your pencil to mark your Bible, um, or if you wait to highlight when you're reading on your app, notice the repetition of the phrase, the Lord. Over and over again, the, the phrase, the Lord, is repeated. Verse five, the Lord has punished Jerusalem. Verse 10, the Lord has forbidden them to enter. Verse 12, the Lord brought on me. Verse 14, the Lord sapped my strength. 15, the Lord has treated my mighty one men with contempt. The Lord has trampled his beloved. Verse 17, the Lord has said. Verse 18, the Lord is right. See, here's what the Bible tells us. The Babylonians were a tool that God was using to direct his holy anger against the sin and the rebellion of his chosen people. Jeremiah knew that. Jeremiah knew that the armies of Babylon were not in control, although they seemed to be. God was. Jeremiah knew that their lives were in the hands of a good God who was using painful consequences to draw his people back to himself. And so over and over we have the repetition of the phrase, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Kind of like Pastor Chuck when he was praying, did you hear it over and over? Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. Now I'm not suggesting, so don't just like, don't take it from here. I'm not suggesting that we build a theology from their story about the reason for suffering in your story. But I do know that from the first word of Genesis to the last word of the Revelation, we are told the story of a God who is in control, a God who is sovereign, a God who is good. Now I'm here to tell you this morning that I haven't had more hardship than many. And I've had less than most. But I can tell you that it has been through the hard times, the painful seasons, the grief that I have learned to lean into and live out of the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Through miscarriages, a traumatic event in which my children almost died, <laughs> my husband's heart attack, and long seasons of personal struggle, I have learned to say, whatever you permit and whatever you prevent is for my good and your glory, and so I trust you. 
That work had been going on in me for a decade and a half. So that when in 2019, my doctor sat across from me and said, I am so sorry to have to tell you this, but it's cancer. I was able to look that diagnosis straight in the face without fear and lean into what I knew to be true, what I'd learned from Psalm 31 and say, my life is in God's hands. Let me tell you the truth, loved ones. Your life is never in the hands of your doctor, your diagnosis, your lawyer, or your employer. Your life is never in the hands of chance, of circumstance, or of your enemy. Your life is in the hands of the good God. Amen. I've recently completed my annual pilgrimage through all seven of the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't done it yet, just do it. So good. And though written for children, every year that I read through it, the older that I get, the more I get out of it. And one of the standout quotes for me this time was King Tyrion to Jill in the book called The Last Battle. When they're facing something that they're like, I don't know if we're gonna make it out alive on the other side. And the king says to the child, courage, child. We are all between the paws of the true Aslan. I know there are hard stories in the Bible and Lamentations is one of them. I know that there are hard stories in, in your life that are difficult to understand. And I do not want to give you easy answers to hard questions. We have to leave lots of room for mystery and for God's sovereignty. But I do know this, God is good and his faithful love endures forever. Lamentations 1 describes a very dark hour. But even in that deep darkness, the people of God declare over and over that God is God and that their lives are in his hands. And if you can hang on until you get to Lamentations chapter three, you will hear the ring of hope that brings. Whatever it is that you're going through today, Remember that you are between the paws of the true Aslan and take courage. The doctor, the devil, chance or circumstance are not in control. Nothing gets to you that has not been sifted through the loving fingers of the good God who holds the whole world including your whole life in his hands. A third takeaway for us is, is this, good grief stands on the promises of God. Good grief stands on the promises of God. There's a significant little phrase in verse 21 Jeremiah says, others heard my groans, but no one turned to comfort me. 
When my enemies heard about my troubles, they were happy to see what you had done. Oh, bring the day you promised when they will suffer as I have suffered. See, nothing that was happening here was a surprise. God had been very clear about the terms of the covenant from the very beginning. From the very beginning, the equation was simple. Obedience equals protection, blessings, abundance, and peace in the land. Disobedience equals judgment, destruction, and the loss of land and life. God had been clear and true from the beginning. God had sent dozens of prophets for generations to warn the people about the consequences of their idolatry. Warned them that they would go into exile. But in the sa- at the same time that God was warning them that they would go into exile, God was also promising that he would bring them back. God also decreed destruction for their enemies And that is what the prophet Jeremiah recalls here. When he says, bring the day you promised, he is standing on the promise that God made to punish their enemies and restore them to the land. So let's think about where we are today. Regardless of what your your history and tradition and practice is, this is the first Sunday of the season of Lent. And so a lot of Christians around the world have begun a journey toward the cross. 40 days of reflection and preparation as we meditate on the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus. Psalm 51 is inspired by, uh, that Pastor Chuck read today, was probably read on Wednesday in lots of churches because this is the, the time of year when we can gaze upon the cross and remember the cost of our salvation and turn toward repentance once again. And if in the course of your Bible reading this season you ever come across Jesus predicting his own death, I want you to notice that he never spoke about his death without also promising his resurrection. Just like God did not send the people into exile without promising that he would bring them back. And here we are today, living as people of hope because we live on this side of the empty tomb. There is a wide open hole in the side of a hill that declares that death is not the end. That pain is never the final chapter of your story. That God always does what he says he will do and that every promise in the book is yes and amen in Christ. Biblical scholars estimate that there may be 3,500 promises in the Bible. And let me tell you the truth, loved ones. Every single promise in the book is true, and it's true for you. Our God is a promise keeper, and especially in times of grief and pain, 
when all the world seems to be giving way underneath us, we need to stand on the promises of God. When the night gets long, remember that joy comes in the morning. When the bucket gets empty, remember that God will provide for all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. When you are weak, remember you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. When you are faced with the insurmountable, remember that nothing is impossible with God. When you feel alone, remember that Jesus promised to be with you always, even to the very end of the age. When you feel unloved, remember that nothing in heaven, on earth, or in hell can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And on and on it goes. There is, not a, there is not a circumstance that you can be in that there is not a promise that God has spoken to you about and that he will not keep. Grief is inevitable. But we do not grieve without hope. Pain is never the last word. Death is never the ending. We live on this side of the cross in the empty tomb, and so we stand on the promise that one day every wrong will be made right, every enemy will be vanquished, and all things will be made new. Amen. Good grief stands on the promises of God. Finally, briefly in closing, good grief remembers to pray. Good grief remembers to pray. Most of the first chapter of Lamentations is descriptive, right? Jeremiah is writing about what happened. But a very important turn takes place near the end, starting at verse 20. He turns and tells God about it going to read from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Lord, see my anguish. My heart is broken and my soul despairs. For I have rebelled against you. In the streets the sword kills and at home there's only death. Others heard my groans but no one turned to comfort me. When my enemies heard about my troubles, they were happy to see what you had done. Oh, bring the day you promised when they will suffer as I have suffered. Look at their evil deeds, Lord. Punish them as you have punished me for all my sins. My groans are many and I am sick at heart. It's a prayer. It's a gut-wrenching, soul-bearing, honest, anguished prayer. And it's interesting to note that pattern is repeated all throughout the book. As you read through it this afternoon or this week, notice that the first three chapters, there's a turning point, they all end with prayer. The very last book of the, of, of the very last chapter of the book, the entire thing is a prayer. 
And my takeaway from that is that the place to turn to in grief and lament is toward God, not away from God. I've taken several deep dives in the book of Job over the years. And what I always find remarkable is that all of the friends in the book are content to talk about God. All their speech is in the third person. Job is the only one in the book who talks to God, who directs his speech in God's direction. And at the end of the book, God says, I am angry with the friends because they have not spoken about me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, here's the thing. If you study it, actually, the friends weren't always wrong. (laughs) They were wrong a lot, but they weren't always wrong. And Job wasn't always right. But the thing that sets them apart is that the friends were content to speak about God And Job was only content to speak to God. And loved ones, I believe that that is our invitation in seasons of pain and grief. That is what makes the difference between complaint and lament. That is what makes good grief. That we grieve in God's direction that we turn toward God, not away from God. When I get up on this platform and those light, bright lights go up, I cannot really see your faces very well. But let me tell you the truth, loved ones. God sees you. God knows you. God wants to hear from you. God's shoulders are big enough for your load. God's heart is large enough for your longing. God's chest is strong enough for your beating. And so whatever your pain, whatever your protest, whatever your pleading, take it to the Lord in prayer. The invitation is to grieve in God's direction, to turn toward him, not away from him, with whatever we've got to say. Because when we turn toward God rather than away from God, when we take our pain and our pleading and our protest and direct it in God's direction, that reflects our relationship and it affirms our dependence. We began by saying that pain is the universal human experience. That pain is the one thing that we all have common in this room today. So what will we do with it? Perhaps lean into 
and live out of the other thing that we all have in common. We are loved by the good God. And the first chapter of Lamentations invites us to be honest about our pain. To remember that your life is in God's hands. To stand on the promises of God which are all yes and amen in Christ. And to make your pain a prayer. And then maybe, just maybe, grief, though painful, can be good after all. Let's bow our heads and hearts before the Lord. As the worship team comes back, it's going to invite you to pray with me. Gracious and loving God, thank you that you see every face today. Thank you that you know every name. Thank you that you know every story. Thank you that you know all about the difficult, painful, grieving places and spaces of our hearts and lives. The things which are known to others and the things that no one knows about but us. God, thank you that you see every person Thank you that our lives are in your hands. And I pray that you would give to us the courage, the humility, the brokenness to turn toward you in this season and to discover more of you than we thought there was. I pray that you would encourage and comfort and strengthen the hearts of these dear ones today. And that whatever each is going through, Jesus, that you would meet them in it and transform that pain into a place of deep encounter with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.